We're going to be looking at two passages of Scripture this morning. The first one was found in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we will be looking at verses 12 through 19. Um, If you all stand for the reading of the Word of God. This entire chapter is an apologetic on the resurrection And these particular words uh, for us this morning, I think, are uh, very appropriate. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished in this life. Only, if in this life only, we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Well, we are finishing up Easter week and we have eyes that can look back in hindsight on the historical happenings, but this was not a good week. Um, for the disciples. This was, in fact, a very, very difficult week for the disciples. Um, the highs and lows, you think about it as they entered into this week, they, we look at it from the standpoint of history. They look at it from the standpoint of history unfolding. So as they walk into this week, they have no clue as to what's going on. I mean, there have been some hints that something's going to happen, There have been some hints that there's a a great deal coming, but they really didn't have much of a clue. So you think about it as they go through this, they begin the week with a high. They're coming in to Jerusalem with Jesus. They see him being um, uh, lifted up, the crowds, the hosannas. And what happens? They end the week with crucify him, crucify him. So I would think if we could this morning to put ourselves somewhat in the place of those disciples, those ones around Jesus as these things are unfolding. We have the death of a beloved master. They've spent time with him. They have walked with him. They have slept with him. They have eaten with him. They have laughed. They've cried. They've had fellowship with him for three years. And now their beloved master is dead. And they had really a little hint, but no real clues. We look at the history of what happened. They really didn't understand. They thought he was dead. And they were not unintelligent people. Dead is dead. It's over. It's done. The Romans and the Jews, the Jewish leaders, they won. The death of a beloved master. The death of a dream. Now, some of the dream was that this was a Messiah that was going to restore the um, Jewish kingdom and overthrow the Roman Empire, but also a dream of 
their master and, and learning from him and walking with him. And basically, they were very, very defeated. They were deflated. It's like a pin to the balloon. It popped and it was, it was flat. They also, not only dealing with the trauma of Christ's death, the ugliness of it, the brutality of it, the injustice of it as, as Christ went through a, a kangaroo court, as he was beaten, as he was flayed, as he was mocked, as he carried the cross, as he went to the cross, as he endured one of the worst deaths there could possibly be. They were surrounded with this. They saw this. And then you have Peter who had denied Christ and all that he's going through. And you have Mary, his mother, who is crushed by the death of a son. And they have all of these things going on. And not only that, they were declared outlaws. The Jewish leaders wanted them captured. And they had the power of the Roman Empire behind them. It was not good news. This was not a good week. And then, to top it all off, there's the conspiracy of lies. The lie that the elite Roman guard, the elite Roman guard, fell asleep. And then you had this ragtag mob of fishermen, a tax collector, um, all these others. They were able to go in while the Roman guards slept, broke an official Roman seal, which was death itself. And then without enough sound to wake up the Roman guard, rolled away a 2,000 pound stone. And it's ridiculous on the face of it. But that was the rumor. That's what was put out there. They stole his body. They took it away. And so here you have this history, this, this week that these people were involved in. And I can tell you, it was very, very difficult for them. We look at 1 Corinthians 15. There obviously is even difficulty that far past Christ being dead and raised that some in this troubled church are saying there's no resurrection of the dead. And so Paul is writing this apologetic to them. And what we see today, yes, we celebrate and we honor and we're thankful for the death of Christ. We are thankful that he paid for our sins. But if there is no resurrection, here's the bottom line to it. If there is no resurrection, these people that were experiencing at that time, all believers from that time on and us now, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus is just another rabble-rousing, itinerant, false Messiah. Our faith, hinges on the resurrection. Because all of the promises that Christ said, all of the things that were taught, all of the things in the Gospels, if this thing doesn't happen, then it's over and it's done. And so what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, these verses? 
First, he says that if there's no resurrection, we're liars. We're preaching a false thing. We're liars. We're breaking one of the commandments. We are bearing false witness if Christ isn't uh, raised from the dead. He's also saying that if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then all those who are in him are dead. They're not, they're not going anywhere. Nothing's going to happen. He also says that we are foolish for trying to live a life that a Christian should live. And the implication is we might as well go ahead and live the easier life if Christ isn't raised from the dead. We of all people are to be most pitied. And so we have a bottom line. And here is the bottom line. Either Christ's corpse is simply ancient dust strewn about the Middle East, or the resurrection claims are true. And if it's true, and Christ is risen from the dead, then that in fact changes everything. That is the pivotal moment of history. That is the pivotal moment that defines everything. Uh, that, that defines everything. In fact, we can look at it from the standpoint that the, the resurrection is not just the period, it's the exclamation mark of here is what is true. All the claims of Christ, all the claims of the gospel, all the claims of the Old Testament, all that leads to this one time, the resurrection is saying, yea and amen. That's it. You can trust it. Now, I don't want to get into a strong, long apologetics. That's not what we're here for today. But there are some brief proofs of the resurrection, just to give us some foundation here. First off, you have the testimony of the apostles. In the testimony of the apostles, we see that Peter was crucified upside down. James was run through with a sword. Bartholomew was hacked to pieces. Paul was beheaded. And out of the 12, only John died of old age. And they didn't have to do that. But they were convinced. They were convinced. All they needed to do, all they needed to say was, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Don't kill me in this awful way. Just kidding. It's, it's not true, but it was true. Chuck Colson, I don't know if many of you remember or know Chuck Colson. He was one of those that were involved in the uh, Watergate uh, break-in and that whole scandal back in the 60s. Chuck Colson became a Christian and he said, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. And they would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? I believe it's impossible. 
So we have the testimony of the apostles. We have the testimony of the women at the tomb as they went to anoint Jesus' body, proof that they believed he was dead. They went to prepare his body for burial. They had no expectation of a resurrection. And so as they go, they discover, we heard as Miles read the story, the angel proclaimed, Christ met, they were excited, they ran back. That's not really that um, outstanding. But what is, is the fact that the Gospels tell us that it was the women who bore testimony. Now, why is that such a big deal? Because today, we, we don't have a problem with that. But back then, central to the happening at that time, women weren't considered reliable as witnesses, and they were not able to be used in court. Their testimony was ignored. It was invalid. There was nothing for it. Yet, here are the writers of the Gospels that are including the testimony of the women, elevating them, elevating their story, elevating their testimony, believing it, and honoring it. And so they make the choice to include this in the story of the resurrection. And it speaks very highly of the reality of it and not the fantasy, as some would say. We read through the scriptures, upwards of 500 eyewitnesses. Jesus appeared to people, and there, were, there was one time 500 witnesses. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to Thomas, and Thomas, good old Thomas, I don't believe it unless I, well, Jesus said, go ahead. Go ahead. Put your fingers in the holes. I'm real. I'm alive. And, Jesus, and Thomas believed. There's another instance. You have to understand that this was such a radical thing, that this was such a radical moment, not just that people don't get resurrected, but the fact that Jesus was an enemy of the state, both of the Jewish leaders and of Rome, and to have this resurrection happen they had to stamp out this new movement and they plied all of their power to try and figure it out and try and bring doubt to it. So basically, the inability to produce his body, it would be that easy. And where can you hide a body for that long that the Roman Empire can't find it? They couldn't produce a body. They interrogated. They looked. It didn't happen. And the other thing is the inability to provide an adequate explanation. So those are just a a couple of, a few little minor things to think about when we think about the resurrection without going into a major apologetic of is it true or is it not. um, I think we can go ahead and say, yes, it is true. So the resurrection, as I said, is the period and the exclamation point on all that Jesus declared and proclaimed. It is the insistence. The resurrection is the insistence that shows that each and every person must and will do business with God. 
There are no exceptions. There is not one that will pass by that won't have to stand in front of God and do business with him. The resurrection proves it. If there is no resurrection, nobody cares. There's no big deal because none of this is true. Tim Keller said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then you then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether is not whether or not you like his teaching or you believe his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. We've got stuff to deal with. The world has stuff to deal with. There will be, because of the resurrection and the power thereof and the, the, the proof, so to speak, that God said and what he said is true, there will be no ignoring. Can't ignore this. There will be no disbelieving or self, self-deception that God isn't. On that day of judgment, it's all very, very clear. It's all very, very open. There will be face-to-face accountability for every person's life and the judgment that comes from that. For those who reject Jesus by trying to ignore him, reason him away, or mock frivolously along the lines of, you know, all my friends are going to be in hell, so why not me? There is eternal punishment for the rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, the interesting thing about it, and we don't enjoy speaking about eternal judgment, hell and damnation, but there will be no excuse because mercy and forgiveness has been offered through Jesus Christ. Each person has to make that decision. Each person has offered the gospel. And so it can't be that, you know, I just didn't understand, I didn't get it. There are no excuses. Mercy, forgiveness, and grace was offered freely. So for those who reject Jesus, that is it. Final and awful judgment. But for those who believe and trust, it is as Spurgeon writes, you stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. What a beautiful, beautiful thought. He took the punishment for our sin, each and every one of us that trust in Christ for our salvation. The church historian Jaroslav Pelikan argued that the resurrection is the decisive claim of Christianity. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. Very plain, very clear. The gospel or the resurrection stamps the promises of the gospel as true. What are those claims? Briefly, payment of sins. That word on the cross to telestai that word that means it is paid in full, it's done, it's 
taken care of. The reconciliation of God, we are reconciled to him. God is reconciled to us. Not that he offended us, but we were the offenders and Christ's death, burial and resurrection shows that he is satisfied. The adoption into God's family. Those who trust in Christ are called son, daughter, sister, brother, a benefit of salvation. The declaration of being justified. We are not justified by our own works, by our own obedience, by our handsomeness, by our beauty, by our wealth, by anything. There is no justification apart from being declared just because of Christ's death. And simple explanation, what is justification? Just as if I have never sinned. It's a clean slate. Entirely and utterly clean. It's not like a whiteboard that's in a classroom that gets used and used and used and you work and work and work and you can still see the faded uh, lines of the drawings and the rays and the, you know, the lines and the polygons and the writings. No, it is white all the time. Completely clean. And then we have the security of care. We have the protection that Christ has told us about. We have the provision that not a hair or, or as the sparrows and the lilies of the field are clothed and the sparrows are taken care of. Will he not take care of us, those whom Christ died for, who paid the price of his blood? Will he not uh, provide for us? Will he not protect us? And Christ himself says, those whom the Father has given me, no one shall be able to snatch them out of my hand. And then we have the promise that we see from uh, Paul. Life, death, height, uh, uh, depth, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ or the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Excuse me. So, we have this section in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul says, you know, if the resurrection's not true, then... And that's why we spent time. It is true. We know it's true. And we stand on that truth. Now, I want to move from the apologetic and the doctrinal to the practical and to application. Because we build our lives on the foundation of doctrine. We build our lives on the foundation of the truth that Christ or that the Bible tells us. And then out of that comes our practice, and our application. I'd be remiss if I just stopped at the doctrinal because all that does, in, to some extent, is feed our heads. We don't just want to feed our heads. We want our heads to inform our hearts so that our hearts can be inflamed. As amazing as all of this is, if we only use it as head knowledge, then we don't experience the ministry of the word as we should a ministry of head and heart. And that's what is so important. That as believers, we shouldn't be those that only sit in our heads and gain knowledge and knowledge and knowledge. As believers, we should be 
those who are known by head and heart, that we can use our intellect to inform our hearts and with that inflame our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit to love him more and more. What really set me on this, um, on this path is, um, I think it was Kirk some weeks ago referred to going back and um, addressing our salvation. And that kicked into me. Um, I don't know if any, any of you know Andre Crouch, um, early contemporary Christian music uh, uh, performer. He uh, did a song called Take Me Back. Now, I would not uh, assault you in trying to sing that to you. Um, and all the verses are not entirely appropriate, but there is the one thing. Lord, take me back. Take me back, Lord, to the day I first received. Take me back to the day I first believed. And that's what I want to do with us today. I want you to take a moment. I want you to take some time. We know this resurrection. We know this great and wonderful uh, salvation that has been provided for us. We know these things as fact. We claim this as fact. But I'd like for us to go back. Now some, for some, like me, it may be a crisis moment where we go back and that time of salvation. What did God save me from? He saved me from my sin, but the specific sin I was convicted of was lying. And I go back to that and I thank him for it because I was a tremendous liar. I lied about my testimony. And the Lord used a young lady on a retreat and nailed me by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I thank God for that. I would like for you to go back that time when you first realize that Christ offers forgiveness of sin, that Christ offers a life that you were not living, a life that perhaps you were in the dregs of life and he brought you out of that, or perhaps you were a really good person. And, and to some extent, in my mind, the good people are the ones that are harder to convince because I'm so good. If I'm so bad, yeah, I'm bad. But whatever it is, wherever you are, and may, it may not be a crisis or a um, prayer kind of uh, conversion uh, of, of the moment. You may have grown into your faith as a covenant child. Go back to a time when Christ and when the Holy Spirit did something for you that moved you, that overwhelmed you, that opened your eyes and opened your heart and just blessed you. And the reason I want us to do that is based in Luke 17, verses 11 and following. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers, this is Christ, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus's feet, giving him thanks. And here's a tiny little statement, but it is a huge statement. 
Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Why is it important that we understand that he was a Samaritan? Um, First off, there was an extreme contrast uh, between the Samaritans and the Jews. In, In the Jewish mindset, the Samaritan was the ultimate outsider. It was half-breeds. When the northern kingdom took Israel away to Assyria, there were some Jews that were left behind and they intermarried with the Assyrians. Then what they did is they mixed up the character of their religion and they set themselves up their own temple, not the temple in Jerusalem. They rejected all the other books of of the scriptures except for the first five books, the Pentateuch, um, which is, and they set up their own system. And there was so much animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans that the Jewish travelers would go around Samaria instead of through Samaria. And then we have two other stories that we see that are so important. We see Jesus uh, speaking about the good Samaritan. Again, the the ones, the in crowd, the ones who should have known, the ones who claimed to know God, they passed by the wounded man and the good Samaritan was humble enough to take care of him. And then you have the story of the woman at the well. Jesus didn't go to the well to get water. He went to the well to get that woman and save her. And she had the double whammy of that time. She was a woman and a Samaritan. And Christ ignored all convention and moved to her. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And here, the in crowd, they just went on. And that little thing, the Samaritan, accepted grace and said, thank you. And that's what I want us to do this morning, is to not be the in crowd that forgets and not be so into our heads that we don't inform our hearts. I know for me, it's difficult at times uh, to think back on my salvation because, I mean, bottom line, I was a professional Christian. That's the bottom line. Because I worked with, I preached, I, you know, all these things as a pastor. And as I get older, it's sometimes a little harder to think back to what God has done for me. But it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing for each and every one of us to think back. Christ was resurrected. And with that resurrection, he makes sure or he guarantees that all of the gospel is true for each and every one of us. Think back. Who were you before you were saved? Do you understand the depth of your sin? How broken, in fact, how dead, and dead is dead. You were dead, I was dead in trespasses and sin. There was no way that I could have on my own come to Christ apart from the Holy Spirit 
regenerating my heart. You too. Think back. Think back. And if you don't go to the point of salvation, I mean, I can even give you the date and the time that I asked Christ to be my Savior. Think back to a time where the Lord showed himself in power to you, where you were so grateful and so thankful and so joyous that the Lord worked in your life. Think back. Lord, take us back. Take us back to the day we receive. Take us back to the day we believe. Lord, take us back. And let us not be these that would walk on and not be grateful and not be thankful. Lord, may we be those who will turn to you and say thank you. Lord, grant that our eyes be opened. Move in our hearts. Inflame us to love you more and to love you better. Father, we ask that you would take these words, work them in our minds, inform our hearts. Help us to put those together. And Lord, we give you uh, thanks and enjoy and gratitude. You are our Savior. And we make our prayer in his name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>